0: this morning with an illustration from Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. I want you to suppose that two people of the exact same age, the exact same level of education, even the same temperament, are hired to do exactly the same job. They're given a task as a part of an assembly line. Their job is to put part A into slot B as many times as they can In an eight-hour day, I want you to imagine that these two people are in the very same room. They experience the same lighting, the same temperature, the same kind of ventilation. Their work is equally boring. Their conditions are the same in every way, save for one important difference. The first person is told that they will be paid an annual salary of $30,000, The second person is told that their salary will be set at 30 million. Now, after a few weeks of work, chances are. Person A is going to begin the search for another kind of job. The the work is dull and uninspiring. They can probably find the same amount of of monetary reward by doing something much more interesting. The second person is likely going to have a very different experience. They may go so far as to say, I'm really thankful for my job, and in fact, I whistle while I work. (laughs) Keller notes you have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It's their expectation of the future. This illustration is not intended to say that all we need is a good income. It does, however, show that what we believe about the future completely controls our experience in the present. Isn't it true? Now, arguably, our lives are more comfortable— and people are living longer than at any other time in the history of the world. Despite the fact that we have access to education and health care, we have relative safety, freedom, and food that is unparalleled again in the history of the world, the rate of anxiety, depression, and suicide continues to rise in most secular Western cultures. There seems to be a a kind of collective despair that has descended, and with it, a growing lack of resilience to face difficulty of any time, any kind. And, And the question we need to ask is, why is this happening? In his book, History of the Idea of Progress, Robert Nisbet offers an explanation. He says, generally speaking, in the ancient world, people thought of time and history itself as cyclical. Things just Endlessly repeating, but with the Judeo Christian worldview, new thought was introduced into the world. Alternative thinking about time and history. Instead of just this endless repeating, time and history itself is linear. It's progressing forward under God's sovereign care and to God's intended purpose. And so the day will come when God will ensure that everything that is wrong will be made right that all weapons are laid down and peace is established on the earth. It's the idea of progress grounded in the providential nature and activity of God. Now, over time, this idea of progress has become secularized, which is to say this core idea of things moving forward remained, but God was removed from the equation. And so we don't need God to guide history or progress. We have all of the intelligence, the creativity, and courage that we need. If we set our minds to it, then we can make the world a better place. We don't need God for that. But there's nothing like a prolonged experience of pain and suffering to expose the myth of unending human progress. Think about the last hundred years of world history. In large part, it has served to burst this unending progress bubble. The earliest part of the 20th century was marked by the Great War, which was followed by the Great Depression, which in turn was followed by another great war. With Hitler's rise to power and his extermination attempts, more than 6 million Jews were killed. Stalin's regime was equally systematic and, in fact, much worse. More than 20 million people were killed under his watch. Chairman Mao Zedong of China was even more successful. He put to death 45 million people. And then we have the Korean War. And the Vietnam War, not to mention the genocidal atrocities in Cambodia and Rwanda. The 20th century has been described as the bloodiest in human history. And in light of these realities, this naive confidence in the uninterrupted progress of humanity now lie exposed. Bankrupt. Many of our high school students and young adults today are confident of the fact that they will be much worse off in life than their parents were. Many university graduates struggle to find the kind of job they're looking for. Purchasing real estate across this country in most urban centers seems way out of reach. There's the threat of global markets collapsing or global pandemics, cyber attacks, terrorist attacks, Climate change, disaster. These are not doomsday prophecies. These are real probabilities in our day and time. And even if we can manage somehow to push these unpleasant thoughts out of our mind, many people begin to despair when it seems as though their life is just one huge jumble of disconnected events. When we live for The moment, seeking one experience or achievement or relationship after another, over time, satisfaction eventually fades, and we experience a crisis of meaning, and we begin to say to ourselves, what is all of this for, and where is any of this going? We cannot live well without hope. None of us can This Sunday marks the the last sermon in our Reasons to Believe series. I I suspect this series is going to resurface again in the future because there's so many things for us to think about, but this morning's subject is hope. And the question I'm asking is, can anyone live well without hope? And does a secular worldview provide any foundation for living a life of hope? What is the Christian understanding? of hope. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And I'm going to read from verse 3 until the end of verse 9. One of Jesus' original twelve disciples, the disciple Peter, is the one who penned this letter. And he wrote it to Christians who had been scattered, exiled really, all throughout the Roman Empire. And this is what he writes Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The salvation of your souls. As we read this scripture, as I read it anyways, one thing became immediately clear to me. Christians are people who focus on the future so that they can remain grounded in the present. Peter begins in verse three by blessing God for what he calls new birth. Elsewhere in the scriptures or in theology, this reality is described as regeneration or conversion. It's the act by which God makes us new. And this new birth changes one's status before God. We're adopted into his family, but it also changes the way we live before others. We begin to believe new things, Pursue new things. Think new things. Do new things. And the operative word in verse 3 is the word mercy. Mercy is first and foremost an undeserved kindness from God. Through Jesus, God reaches out to humanity in our sinful opposition to him, and he offers forgiveness. Apart from this forgiveness, this This new birth, there's there's no possibility of a newness of life. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if you don't know the context, pastorally, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who have been scattered from Jerusalem. They're now all over the Roman Empire, and they've been scattered because of their faith. In Jesus Christ. They're, they're in the midst of persecution, and they, these Christians didn't have any reason to believe that their lives were going to become any easier anytime soon. No one lives well in the absence of hope, but hope, as we all know, is connected to a future reality. None of us hope for what we already have, And so Peter talks about this living hope, a hope that's connected to Jesus Christ, the one who died, was raised, and now lives forever. Peter Davids writes, Because Jesus really did shatter the gates of death and exists now as our living Lord, those who have committed themselves to him share in his new life and can expect to participate fully in it in the future. It is this reality which will enable the readers, then and now, to face even death without fear. For death is not the end of the Christian, but a beginning. Verse 4, this new birth, in other words, a new relationship with God, leads to a living hope that we know is connected to Jesus Christ, the living one, and it guarantees a promised inheritance. And Peter goes on to describe this inheritance using three adjectives. Our inheritance cannot perish or die because it's permanent. Our inheritance cannot spoil or rot like overwrite fruit. Our inheritance cannot fade or wither like a beautiful flower. As we think about our lives we must confess that almost everything we have can be taken from us. Relationships can be taken. Our status can be taken. Our possessions, even our dignity, they can perish, spoil, or fade. But God promises a a reward that no force on earth can touch. And not only does God preserve this inheritance for us, but he preserves us as well. And the image that we're given in Peter's letter is is a military one. God shields us. He's a fortress. He's our strength. He's an armor bearer. Now, God doesn't shield us from all difficulty, of course. We're not made immune to pain, but he is with us, and he does strengthen us so that no matter what happens, we can stand. Nothing can wrench us from his grasp, and no one can take from us what he's given. Peter speaks of this coming salvation, and to many modern ears, modern secular ears, this notion is is utterly offensive. Speak of salvation implies that humanity needs to be saved from something. And so either there's a standard of behavior that, that we simply cannot meet or there's an enemy too strong that we can't defeat. And from the Bible's perspective, both issues are at play. But rather than a fo- focus on the offense of the gospel, Peter directs people to the certainty of the salvation God has promised. God is faithful and he will do what he said he will do. Verse six, painted for us in verse six is a reality that all of us know all too well. While we may experience new birth, adopted into God's family, embraced by this living hope, we also experience suffering. It's a consequence of living in this broken world. Suffering is not a part of God's plan, but that doesn't mean that suffering goes unchecked. God can redeem suffering for his purposes. And so, hope can lead to joy no matter our circumstances. Now, I know this is a sweeping generalization, but, but here in the West, I, my, my suspicion is that most of us prize comfort above almost every other thing. We don't want our lives to be hard. We want it to be easy. Trials Difficulty, suffering, they may produce in us a wealth of character. It may test and refine our faith, but we'd rather avoid pain at all costs. Standing with God, standing for God in this world will cost us something, no doubt. But the question becomes, is the price worth paying? In verse 7, Peter compares faith to gold that's been refined by fire. Trial and difficulty test our faith, revealing it for what it is, purifying it so that it becomes even more valuable. When we stand with and for God, it results in praise, glory, and honor for him and for us. What Peter is saying is it's worth it. He is worth it. We love him because he first loved us. We've been forgiven, adopted, and promised an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What we believe about the future always shapes profoundly our experience in the present. And it's for this reason that Christians, above all people on the earth, are people of hope. One of the great challenges to a secular worldview is that it fails to deal meaningfully with one of the most central aspects of all human experience, namely, death. Tim Keller writes, rather than to see death as a terror, many contemporary thinkers counter that death is nothing to fear and that it can indeed be seen as a part of the living story of the world. Perhaps the most famous pop culture expression of this account Um, is put forth in the movie The Lion King, one that many of you have watched, in which a young lion is told that though lions eat the antelope, they eventually die and fertilize the grass, and the antelopes eat the grass, and so we're all connected in this great circle of life. But the reality is that the great majority of people are terrified of death. Keller continues, all the ancient myths and legends that deal with death depicted it as an intrusion, an aberration, and a monstrosity. You will not find the accumulated wisdom of the ages insisting that death is perfectly natural. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death does not feel natural, however biologically necessary it may be. The shortest verse in the entire Bible is found in John 11, verse 35. It consists of only two words. It says, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Well, he was standing at the tomb of a very close friend of his. His name was Lazarus. The last time Jesus saw Lazarus, he was healthy, vibrant, full of life, but how quickly things had changed. And as Jesus stood by the tomb and and friends and family of Lazarus gathered around, and Jesus saw them weeping and wailing, we're told that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. A more literal translation would read, Jesus was overcome with sorrow and anger. Now, sorrow we understand. But why was Jesus angry? He wasn't angry at Lazarus for dying. He wasn't angry at the people looking after Lazarus as if they could have done a better job and Lazarus would still be here. No, Jesus was angry at death itself, for death was never a part of God's plan. Death interrupts. It separates us from the ones we love. Death isn't perfectly natural. It's an intrusion, it's an aberration, it's a monstrosity. In the same encounter in John 11, Jesus had a conversation with Martha, Lazarus' sister. And in essence, Jesus asked her about the future, about Lazarus' future. What do you think, Martha? And Martha responded, saying, in the end, God will raise Lazarus up from the grave. And Jesus responded immediately, saying, you don't need to wait for the end, Martha. I am right now resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. A new birth. Into a living hope, guaranteeing an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Martha took Jesus at his word and believed. We don't realize how important it is until we meet someone, until we meet someone who, who doesn't have it. Four weeks ago now, um, here at North Shore Alliance, I officiated the memorial service of a high school student. Um, the student was connected to our church from the time he was young. At the age of 11, Eli made a profession of faith and, and, and was baptized just right over here. Um, the memorial service was packed. 500 plus people with easily half of the attendees being high school students. And in the days that followed, a number of these students had questions about Eli's faith and the things that I had had said. And so Eli's mom invited a whole group of them to drop by her house, and then she invited me to, to swing by and answer whatever questions they might have. And so on a Thursday afternoon a few weeks ago, 25 or 30 students piled into her living room, and for 90 minutes straight, we talked about life, death, faith, and grief. Did God plan for Eli to die? Where is he now? Is he lonely? Is he hurting because he sees that all of us are in so much pain? The questions just kept coming and coming. And bit by bit, I told him the story of God becoming human in Jesus because of his great love for the world. I shared what the Bible says about life and death. The wait for Eli is now over. He is right now face to face with God enveloped by glory. And one day, it's going to be our turn. But for now... We put our faith in Jesus. So as the conversation went back and forth, at one point, a young man raised his hand. I don't mean to be disrespectful, he said, but I'm not a person of faith. I'm an atheist, and I'm sad all of the time, but I've got a question for you about God, and before he can ask the question, I interrupted him. I said, hold on a moment. You just said that you're an atheist and you're sad all of the time. Can you tell me in your mind, what's the connection between those two things? And he thought for a moment and then responded, I guess as an atheist, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. But hearing you talk about faith, I think to myself, maybe if I had faith, then I'd know the kind of hope you're talking about. I was stunned. What this young man had said was so profound, and as I looked around the circle of high school students and all of these precious faces, my heart was crying out, did you hear what he just said? We do not live well without hope. None of us are meant to. I want to conclude this morning with a blog post written by John Stackhouse. John is a former professor of mine. He's a brilliant writer, and he has a really deep heart for the church and for for pastors in particular. He's been so kind to me and helpful in shaping the way I think about the Bible and about the world. A few years ago, John was on vacation when he got the tragic news that the daughter of one of his close colleagues had been killed in a car accident. She'd been driving on an icy road from Trail to Castlegar. She was headed back to school, and the father asked John if he would preach at her funeral, and he agreed. And this is what John writes about the the whole experience. He says, I wasn't ready for such an awful occasion. Who is My late father was a cancer surgeon. He would operate in the mornings and then meet patients in the afternoons. And almost every day, he'd have to give someone the grim news that there was nothing they could do, the disease was too far advanced, and they would face death very soon. What percentage of his patients were ready for such news? Zero. Who is Evelyn Bodner was on her way to write a midterm exam. She wasn't ready for death. Who is? But she was ready for what comes after. What comes after? And how do you prepare for that? Many Canadians, John writes, even those who have attended church, imagine the next life as our souls flying up to heaven, being handed a white robe, being assigned to a particular cloud, and being issued a harp to play forever. How do you prepare for that far-side cartoon version of heaven, an endless, dull worship service, presumably by finding the most boring church in town and attending its meetings as often as you can? But Evelyn knew better. She worshiped in churches that taught the Bible well, and she knew that the last two chapters of the Bible depict not us going up to heaven, but God bringing heaven down to earth. The New Jerusalem is not some vague vaporous thing, but an actual city replete with trees and water and fruit and light and buildings and streets and joy. It isn't isn't an escape from earth, it is Earth 2.0. How do you prepare for that? by becoming perfect so you won't spoil it, and by becoming immortal so that you can enjoy it forever. Evelyn did her best. She plunged into life. She was a talented musician, an athlete, and lifeguard with homemaking skills and a hospitable heart who gave happiness to everyone who knew her. She lived every day to become more and more the best version of herself, practicing, living the fullest, richest life she could, and she knew that wouldn't be enough. She couldn't make herself perfect nor immortal. So Evelyn trusted God for all she couldn't do herself. She trusted Jesus' cross to atone for her sins and Jesus' resurrection for her hope that she too would be one day raised from the dead. She trusted the Holy Spirit to give her a fresh start in a new life, to be born again. She trusted the Spirit to direct and empower her each day to become more and more the person God wanted her to be. She trusted the Bible among the many books she loved to give her the very word of God as a guide and encouragement in every decision. And she trusted the church for sustaining company on the way. She turned to God for what she couldn't provide for herself, rescue, renewal, rehabilitation. On that terrible day, anyone who knew her could be sure that Evelyn Bodner was ready for that midterm. But she never got there. She went straight to the final. The final, final. And when she arrived, there was no exam. Just a warm, warm welcome to the rest of her life. And for that, Evelyn Bodner was ready. A new birth into a living hope that guarantees an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. My dear people, is this your hope? Are you ready? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. They're gonna lead us in in a final song. As they come, allow me to pray for you. Kind and merciful Father we thank you for this living hope that is connected to Jesus the living one who died was raised to life and now lives forever his resurrection is a sign and a witness of what waits for all of us who put our faith in him And today, Father, for anyone here today who has not yet trusted Jesus in this life or for the life to come, I pray that today would be the day. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we find in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We thank you for your generosity in pouring out new life, for including us in your family. And so we say yes to your forgiveness. We say yes to life. And we say yes to the promise that is kept in heaven for us. And so for Evelyn Bodner and Eli Drassel and the many others we know who are no longer with us, we rejoice in the truth that one day there will be a great family reunion. Face to face with you, God, and with those we love. And on this truth, and on you yourself, Jesus, we place our hope. Amen. Let's stand and worship God. It is certainly our great enemy But death does not have the final word in life Jesus does Jesus has the final word And so we have hope Before you're dismissed this morning It may be that you would love to pray with someone Maybe someone you know and care about um, Isn't a person of faith They're living without hope And you'd just like to have someone join you And pray that God would meet them where they're at and open their eyes and ears. We would love to pray with you for your friend. Maybe you yourself are that person. You you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus. You'd like to do that today. Our prayer minister team is gonna be up front. They would love to pray for you, whatever your need might be. Now let me just speak a, a final word of blessing. May the love of God the Father and the peace of Christ the Son and the hope that the Holy Spirit brings comfort and keep us all. Amen and amen. The Lord bless you.